You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Welcome to episode three of Heritage Voices. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. Today, I'm talking to Jason Nez. Navajo, or Diné, as they call themselves, archaeologists, about what it's like to be an archaeologist as a Diné person, as well as public archaeology and fire archaeology. both working at Grand Canyon National Park, both working for cultural resources, although I was doing ethnographic work and he was doing archaeology. And he's worked in a variety of of different federal settings, park service, forest service, all kinds of different places in a variety of of different settings, both fire archaeology, more standard archaeology, interp, or interpretation, I should say. So I'll let him tell you a little bit more about himself and introduce himself a little bit. Yeah, So Good morning, everyone. My name's Jason Nez, and I'm Zuni Edgewater. I'm born for the Aribe Salt Clan, and my maternal grandfather is Tangle people, and my paternal my paternal grandfather is uh, Mexican people. And I'm from this place called Coal Mine, which is actually Saltwater and Gold Springs, which is south of Coal Mine. But I'm from I'm way out there in the res. Good morning. So, Jason, how did you I mean, coming from this Diné background, how did you get interested in archaeology? Well, I had graduated from NAU in 2004, and one of the first jobs I got was as an interpretive ranger at Navajo National Monument. And at Navajo National Monument, I was down at Keep Seal, and I was down there in the little Hogan. I would give tours and and while I was there, there's not much to do sometimes. <laughs> so I had access to all these books. I had some of the the, the notes from A.E. Douglas, and I had like Jeff Dean's books. I had all these archaeology books. So in three seasons down there, all I did was read read about archaeology, read early report, exploration reports, Rainbow Bridge, Monument Valley Expedition, and read all the all all of the books in archaeology literally and in three years i sort of educated myself on the laws the policies and a lot of the the philosophies and ethics of of archaeology and i realized that as a traditional person as someone that was raised by my aunts and my grandparents that i could do archaeology and not and not uh what's the word for it 
it was acceptable in in my interpretation of Navajo culture, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's an interesting point because so my husband and I we lived out at, at Navajo National Monument as well, not at the same time as Jason, but um, there was definitely some pretty strong feelings from the the Navajo people that my husband worked with about being an archaeologist and about approaching archaeology sites and how to do that in a safe and respectful way. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the the Navajo Diné views on archaeology? Well, one of the way I look at archaeology as a science as a scientist and as a as an archaeologist is that we're existing now in the present but one of the goals one of the basis of our existence is we need to be in balance in navajo we call it mm-hmm. i'm walking around in balance i'm walking in beauty and the only way for that to happen is we have to be in balance with our past. We have to be, we have to know about who we were in order to know about who we are. We have mm-hmm. to come to terms with the places we've come from. We have to recognize our relationships with the past and the people, the ruins, the artifacts. We need to be in balance with all of that. Because okay. without knowing any of that, we're not going to be in balance with the future. We're not going to know what to leave for the future. We're not going to know how to leave it. We're not going to know why to leave it. So we got to also be in balance with our future too. And we have to be in balance with the people around us sideways because we're looking back, we're looking forward. Now we look around us and we have neighbors we have people, we have tribes, we have agencies all around us to the north, to the east, to the south. We have we have Hopis, we have Zunis, we have Paiutes, we have Utes, and all these all these tribes, we need to learn how to live together, how to cooperate and how to get along. And we've also got to be in balance with the earth below us, and we gotta be in balance with the sky above us. So to me that that part of Navajo culture, living in balance with everything around us, that that allows me to be a scientist because I can answer the questions I need to be in balance and I can preserve and protect things in order to be in balance with the future too. Mm-hmm. And I can work with other people all around me. So that's how I'm able to do it. Right. And do you have any suggestions? You're mentioning being in balance with all of the people around you. And this is something that that I've noticed as well, that that the tribes seem to be coming together a lot more to protect shared cultural resources or, or heritage. Do you have any advice on how you can maintain that balance working with different people? I think that if we just communicate with each other, if we talk with our friends, our neighbors, our our relatives, then we'll realize that the world is a bigger place than just what's around us, like what's around me right now. Mm-hmm. There's things I do that affect people way down the road, that affects the past, 
and just talking with people, meeting people, communicating with them, you'll realize that there's a, a big connected being that we're part of. And that's how we should look at everything. That's how we should look at everything we do. That's how we should look at everything we say and we think is how does it affect not just myself, but my family? How does it affect this neighborhood? How does it affect this community? And I think that's important for a scientist. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we get bitter, we get angry, like, oh my God, humanity, we're just a blight on the earth. <laughs> Global warming is just a fever that's going to heat up and kill us all and start over. And, and that's not how we should think. We still got to main, we still got to maintain our connections to, to humans, to, to animals. We still got to realize that we're going to be here a long time and we all got to figure out how to get along together and mm -hmm. help each other. Yeah. So I want to back up for a minute and talk about all of these experiences that, that led you to these understandings. So can you talk a little bit about the different type of work that you've done within archaeology? Well, I started out, dang, 17 years ago now. <laughs> I was a interp ranger down at Navajo National Monument, and I was down there for three seasons. And while I was down there, the locals would come by because everyone would get coal from the mine. And I said, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, there's an excavation going on over there. What do you know about that excavation going on over there? So I went and looked into it, and the Navajo Archaeology Department was doing a big excavation for a road project up on Black Mesa. So my season was ending, so I just sort of walked into the office in Flagstaff at NAU and like, hey, I'd like to work. <laughs> give, me, <laughs> give me something to do. And, and I started out just like, screening artifacts and then I started digging a little and just that curious part of me just took over and I just gobbled up everything I could everything I could learn from everyone at NAD about excavating about coming down and levels and filling out the paperwork and it just it just it just grabbed me mm -hmm. and then like 2004 2010 six years later I was able to run projects. I was able to direct projects in the field and I could run crews and I could, I could write budgets and all that. And I could apply section 106 and 110 and all of that to, to the work I was doing. And then I, I, my time with NAD came to an end and I started working for the museum and Flagstaff. And then I worked for the park service. And then I work for the Forest Service in Grand Canyon, and it's just been a. I, I love I love archaeology. <laughs> I just <laughs> like it a lot. And yeah. one of the reasons I like it is that, as, as a native scientist, it gives me a chance to 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 do a job that we have very little native representation. And by doing my job well, to the best of my ability. I let other non-native people know that, hey, native people, we're capable of being a good scientist. We're capable of being a good archaeologist, too. And, and that's how I try to, that's how I, I look at things. That's why I work hard, is to, to bring us all up, to help us all out. Mm -hmm. Is that, I know I, we've talked a little bit about this before, but 
is that something that you feel like you sometimes get from non-native archaeologists more of a um, a resistance or that idea that you're that you're not a real scientist not not so much it's just that it's not really resistant it's just sort of Hey, I've never worked with a native archaeologist before. I didn't know you guys did archaeology. I'm like, oh yeah, cool. Well, we're here, and we're <laughs> right here in front of you. Let's, let's get to work. And and I really like to to teach people that hey, we're we're capable of this. We can do it. Let's all let's let's get this done. Let's protect the protect these ancestors. Let's protect these resources. Let's protect this information and this place for the future. And we're all we're all part of that team. <laughs> Yeah. So, do you find it a challenge sometimes to be the only Native American archaeologist on a crew? It 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 can be a challenge sometimes, and it can be difficult to convey our cultural meanings and our cultural attachments. That growing up here on the res or growing up Native, like we just know it. Mm -hmm. it's right. Like, well, that's just how it is. And then having to go back and explain cultural connections and explain our clan system. And once I explain that, and once people learn that, we're all better for it. <laughs> the, everyone will remember it and they'll, they'll do their jobs better and they'll work together, work together better. Mm -hmm. And that goes into sort of what I do as a fire archeologist is I, I go out on different fires in different places and I try to, I get out and I'm looking for artifacts, I'm looking for places, I'm looking for traditional cultural properties and working with the fire management on how best to preserve it or protect it and, and convey some of the, the native our native attachments, I guess. Mm -hmm. So when I'm out working, I'm usually assigned with the crew and I'll be telling them about like the history of the area I'm working at and I'm, I'll be telling them about native connections and all that and we'll be all out sitting in the ash or something or sitting amongst the dead trees and having these discussions. And I think we're all, we're all better for it that these young men and women, they're gonna learn something. They're going to learn something about Native Americans, and they're, they they'll be okay. I'm not just I'm not just saving a bunch of rocks. These are dwellings. These are where people live, and the people that used to live here, they live right over there, and they can point to the nearest Hopi village or the nearest Pueblo village, mm -hmm. or they'll point mm -hmm. to the nearest Native community and realize that the work I'm doing here is helping those people and their future generations over there. And that's, right. that's one thing I really like doing is really showing people that. And, and I think that they'll work better. They'll work. We'll all get along once we learn these things. Mm -hmm. Is there something specific you feel like that really helps it all click for people or something that, that people just find really impactful when you talk to them about it? I think that just being native and saying these things is helpful. 
we can bring in any non-native and they'll come in and talk about native history but does that really sink in <laughs> right right when someone from somewhere else comes in and but if it's a real native person from the local community that can point to the places on the horizon where he grew up where he used to play and i think that that means a lot for for people that listen for people that are being told the stories and the culture that someone from that is actually there telling them. Right. And that, 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 that's one of the reasons I like doing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I think we are at a good point for our first break. So we will be back in a moment. Would you like to get more involved with archaeology? Are you looking for volunteer or internship opportunities? Are you already working on community or personal archiving projects and could use some helpful hints? Check out the Ideas Portal, sponsored by Codify. Visit ideas.codify.com, a free and open community tool, and share your ideas, knowledge, and advice on select topics that will lead to vibrant opportunities and initiatives for all aspects of archaeology, from fieldwork to public service. All ideas are welcome, so visit ideas.codify.com today and make your voice heard. That's ideas.codifi.com. All right, and we are back. So there was there was lots of questions that are that are coming to my mind, but I think where I want to start with next is you're talking about passing on archaeology to the next generation. And I know that this has always been a really big focus for you, the, the education or the public archaeology component. So can you talk a little bit about the work that you've done around public archaeology and what it means to you? Well, one of the, one of the obligations I see myself trying to, to work with is that a lot of times human beings people were we're afraid of things that we don't understand we're afraid of things that we're not educated about if you look at the way people are afraid of the dark people don't want to walk around outside there's scary things out in the dark but if you learn about what's out there how animals act at night and where they live and all that and all of a sudden walking around in the dark isn't as scary you look at the way europeans think about the black forest oh the black forest is full of devils and witches and wild animals but eventually people learned about what's actually out there and it didn't well, they probably cut it down by that time, but <laughs> but <laughs> once once you learn what's out there, you don't have to be afraid of it. As people, once we learn about ourselves, as a native person, if we learn about who we are, we don't have to be afraid of our past. We don't have to be afraid of who we were. And once we learn who we were, then we're better people because we'll realize that our connections go all the way back into prehistory. And it's something that we should be protecting and preserving, not being afraid of, <laughs> mm -hmm. not just 
trying to destroy it because we don't understand it. We'll develop a respect for not just the past, but ourselves if we learn about these artifacts, if we learn about the people that made them. And that's right. one of the reasons why I do what I do is that that's how we can preserve and protect these things. We don't necessarily need a person out there with a gun telling people, stay away, don't come here, don't do this, don't do that. But instead, we can teach people about how to live with it, how to avoid things if that's what they want, or we can teach people their connection so they don't have to live in that fear, that they don't have to live in, in misunderstanding. And that's why I, I, I try to work with Native people and Native kids as much as I can so that they can learn about these connections, so they can take pride in the great things that Native people have done. We built the Cahokia Mountains. We built Machu Picchu. We built Chaco Canyon. We set up the foundation for the, the current American government with mm -hmm. the, the the Iroquois Confederacy, we, it's because of us that this country is where it's at, and we need to take pride in that. We need to learn about it, because then that comes around and it affects our self-esteem. It affects who we are now. I mean, if we, if all we see every day is, is just the problems, if all we see is like, oh, everyone's unemployed, everyone's drunk, if we that that's all we let ourselves see, then then that affects us, that affects our self esteem. But if we learn about who we really are, we can be proud of that. We can take pride in it and be better people because your self esteem's better. It makes having better self esteem makes getting a job easier. It makes you want to go out. It makes you want to do things. It makes you want to be a positive member of society. And and that's one of the reasons I do what I do. Right. I, that is so true. I watched Jason give, um, well, he did an atlatl excuse me, demonstration <laughs> for a group of kids from Flagstaff, and it included kids with Native American heritage. And I had spent the better part of a week with these kids, and seeing their reaction to Jason and to learning about their history, it was just a complete transformation. That moment was so inspiring for them. And it just really highlighted that, that sense of pride that you're talking about. It was, it was a really yeah. special thing to be part of. Yeah. And, and sometimes we just, everyone, kids, adults, we just got to, someone has to show us you can do it. Mm -hmm. You can do it. Right. You can build a weapon out of a rock. You can mm -hmm. make a, a bow or an outlaw out of a stick. And there's, we're, we're capable of these things. We've done it before, and we can do it again. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And I think that component of seeing somebody that looks like them is so huge. Because like you said before, I can show up and I can I can talk about Native American history all I want, but it's not going to have that same resonance to anybody, but especially to Native American kids as if you do it. So could you talk maybe a little bit about 
what we would need to do to get anthropology and archaeology more inclusive and to, to show kids that, that there is a place in anthropology and archaeology for them. I, th I think that it's sort of us natives, we need to, we need to step up more. I'm, I'm a hypocrite sometimes because I tell people, like, go to school, go, go do this and that, go learn about that, and then come back. And then myself, I can't afford to go to school, so I don't have a master's degree, but I'm, I'm encouraging people to, to go to school to get those, to get their bachelor's, to get their master's, because we need smart, intelligent Native people out there, not just in our local communities, but out working with these federal agencies, working with Fish and Wildlife Service, working with the Park Service, working with working with the Forest Service, because these these areas that are being managed out there, they're not they're not just empty places. I mean, you look at the old interpretive signs to say, oh, the mysterious people, they just up and disappeared. And that's not the case. <laughs> We've always been going back to these places. We've always been returning to these forests and mountains, and we've always been coming to get resources. And we need to change that that narrative. And the only way we're going to change it is we got to get out there. we got to let the world know that we're still here. We've never left. And that's part of part of our job, I guess, is, is to show that, that we're still here. Otherwise, people will just run us over. People, there's politicians that believe the myth of the disappeared Indian. There's people that, when they think of Native Americans, all they see is the Redskins. All mm -hmm. they see is the Pocahontas, when they should be seeing us out there as, as real human beings, as workers, not as caricatures here for their amusement. And we need to set those examples too. Mm -hmm. did, did that answer the question or did it just go off on some crazy tangent? <laughs> <laughs> no, that does answer the question. Is there anything to add on to that? Is there anything, because you're talking about what Native Americans can do, is there anything yeah. that non-Native Americans can do to help make the field more inclusive? Or to be um, more respectful to people within the field that are Native American. I, I think they could, they could give us a chance. I mean, you look at a lot of uh, cultural resource CRM companies, cultural resource management, and they're not very diverse. <laughs> right. With nothing but respect for a lot of these companies who all have to work for it, you don't see. There's not many natives in these companies. And I think that's something that that people should consider. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, right. It's just something that becomes glaring sometimes. Yes. No. It's definitely interesting that the the vast majority of people looking at you know your heritage are not of your heritage. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, and that can be that can be an issue because some of these companies they come and they work on our reservations. They're looking at native artifacts. They're looking at native rock art, but 
their experience with all of that comes from the educational aspect of it rather than the life experience, I guess. And, and sometimes right. that's needed, but sometimes you need you need that touch. <laughs> and and I tell people, like native people too, that we're we're from here. We're from these places. I mean, we're made of this dirt, this orange tubicity dirt that gets in your hair and your ears when the <laughs> wind blows. Like that's who we are. There's mm -hmm. muddy water after the spring flood that sometimes that's all you have to drink. <laughs> that's us too. And these skies right now, they have that yellow tint from the power plants. That's us. <laughs> like we're, okay. we're made of this place. We're made of everything here and we're, we know how to look at it. We know how to read this land and the resources that are out there. And I think we're needed. We our input is needed, not just as like ethnographic, not just for ethnographic interviews, but they need us out there on the ground. They need us out there in their office, I guess. Right. Yeah. Right. But that's that's for CRM to to worry about, I guess. <laughs> we're all <laughs> We're all scientists. We're all on the same team. We're trying to preserve and protect the same resources. And, uh, right. And I think we we just have a lot to learn from each other if they would just give us a chance. Right. That whole the idea that no matter what kind of diversity it is, that diversity always helps us see more possibilities and yeah. understand more of what we're doing. And I mean, yeah. obviously, in this case, it's more than just diversity, because like you said, you have the the direct experience and the, the cultural background. But I, I would think that CRM organizations would see in multiple ways all the different kinds of, of benefits that yeah. diversity and especially Native American diversity could bring to their, their companies. Yeah. Yeah. And someday maybe that'll translate to something, but <laughs> now I can I can wish. Yeah. So one thing that you mentioned in there that I I do want to touch upon as well is you're talking about development on the reservation, uh -huh. and I think that it's easy a lot of times for archaeologists to be against any kind of development on the reservation because obviously the reservation has insane cultural resources on it. Yeah. Um, but on the other side, as somebody that lives on the reservation, you also know that, you know, the, that kids schools get canceled all the time because the roads aren't at the same level as they are off the reservation. And yeah. so they get, you know, muddy and flooded and, kids can't make it yeah. to school on a regular basis or that there's no running water or electricity in a place right next to a power plant or yeah. that people are, are struggling to find enough firewood to be able to, to heat their houses in the winter. And obviously yeah. these things are important. So how as a native American archeologist, do you see the balance between those two aspects? Well, some of those problems 
they're rooted in they're rooted way off the reservation they're rooted in congress we're at the mercy of budget allocations from congress when they decide to pick fights with each other like oftentimes minority communities like native american communities we're caught in the crossfire between both parties trying to impress people, I guess. I don't, I don't really know, but in the end, it's the funding to maintain our roads that gets cut. It's the funding to maintain our schools that gets cut. It's the funding for, for, for that type of development that gets cut. Under the Treaty of 1868, the federal government obligated itself to provide education, it obligated itself to provide infrastructure needs for Navajo people, for Native people. Everyone, we all have different treaties, but my tribe, for example, the Denehi, they, they said that we're going to do this for you if you give up all this, and we gave up all that, and they're not fulfilling their obligations and that's that's part of that issue too is getting them to <laughs> fulfill their legal legal op- obligations i mean if they don't want to then i don't know i, I guess i could be militant give it all back from <laughs> utah all the way down to the mogulan rim give right. it all back and we'll we'll figure it out but that's probably not realistic, and and that's more militant than I I would rather be. But if they would communicate with us, I guess, and stop treating us as like pawns. <laughs> well, if you don't agree to what we're gonna do, we're gonna cut funding for Native people, and they're all gonna get stuck in the mud. If they stop treating us like that and started treating us on equal terms with every other non-native community i think we'd be in better shape right that being said that being said that's sort of grounded in the the treaty obligations they have toward us like just go by what you agreed to and and i think we'll (laughs) that's a starting point but that's a whole nother a whole nother issue <laughs> People could talk for weeks on right. treaty obligations, and but we're we're an expanding people, and we have communities that are growing seemingly without a plan. And I would really wish that my my tribe would sort of figure out how we're going to grow, which direction we're going to grow. But it doesn't seem like we're we're quite there yet. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that's a whole nother topic though. <laughs> yes. So we're at a good point for our second and final break. So we will be right back and get back into this discussion. This is Christopher Sims, host of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. It's a show geared for early career archaeologists where I bring interviews and casual panel discussions 
about the challenges and opportunities that many archaeologists encounter starting off. So, if you're still in school, thinking about going back, just getting started, or want to take the next step, you'll find what you need to go dig a hole. Tune in every other week on the Archaeology Podcast Network. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. And we are back. So one thing that that brings to mind for me, too, is is this another specific thing that we've talked about before, which is what are called home site surveys. So on the Navajo reservation, as I'm sure plenty of other reservations, in order to put a home on the reservation, you have to have it first surveyed for archaeology. Um, and that's because, you know, reservation land, it's it's part of trust land set aside by the federal government for the tribes. So it falls under uh, the National Historic Preservation Act. So basically what happens there, though, is that there becomes a backlog where it becomes very difficult for people to get houses built because there's not enough archaeologists to do those home site surveys. So I know that you have some experience, if I remember correctly, doing this kind of work. Do you want to talk about home site surveys at all and, and how you see the balance between the two sides there? Yeah, I did. When I worked for the, the tribe, I did a lot of home site surveys and it was a, it was a great experience because I got to go out to areas of the reservation that I normally wouldn't have a reason to go to and I would talk to people. So when I'm out there doing their home site, they say, I want I want to build a house here. And I go out and look around and I talk to them about the history of the area, like who used to live there and where they came from. And I had some really great discussions with, with people out in the middle of the reservation, like way out in the boonies on the res. And one of the, one of the, the things I would do also is, in addition to serving, I'd be helping people. So let's say there's a room block and they want to build their house by it, or they never saw it, and I'll help them find a spot nearby that's far enough from from that site where they won't accidentally hit anything that's buried or accidentally hit a part of the site that they didn't want to, and I'd help them position their home site where cultural resources wouldn't be affected. And oftentimes we do that in the field. 
which was great because then people could get their home sites and then the resources were protected also. And in addition to that, coming from an environmental science background and being a rancher and a farmer, I could look at erosion, I could look at placement, and I could tell people like, hey, you know, the way you build your house here, the wind is just going to blow your foundation out. Or, hey, look, there's a, there's a drainage coming down. You, don't, you probably don't want to build it here. If you move it way over here, you won't be affected by flooding. And that's one way I would help out with people as I'm, as I'm doing my, my job doing home sites. And, and it, everyone, we're, we're like all over the place expanding on the reservation. So we're constantly trying to make the best out of marginal areas. We're trying to live out in places that are way off the, off the beaten path. And hopefully people will be getting solar power and all that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to change the topic a little bit just because I want to make okay. sure that we get to it. Um, but can you tell us a little bit more about your work in fire archaeology and just first of all, what is fire archaeology? Okay. So whenever there's a fire, especially on federal land, they have to have, there's a lot of ground disturbance. There's bulldozers driving around, there's safety zones being built by bulldozers, there's people cutting hand line, they're scraping away the soil to create fire breaks, and there's a lot of, there's retardant drops going on where there could be rock art. So a lot of that needs, it needs someone with archaeology background that can go in and help crews on the ground decide this is where this is where you should build your fire line so it doesn't affect this this prehistoric site. This is what we should do to protect this historic cabin that dates from the 1900s or something. Or this is where let's let's mark this on your map so no one drops red retardant in this in this section here of of the fire that way the rock art's not impacted. So a lot of that needs an archaeologist. And oftentimes they're they're like local resource archaeologists so let's say the archaeologists for the forest they'll they'll call someone like me in and i'll go out and i'll work with crews in the field and we'll be out there on the fire line checking on sites marking sites so the bulldozer bulldozers don't scrape away the surface because some of these sites are just artifact scatters pottery shirts or lithics that are on the first like 10 centimeters of soil and if a bulldozer goes through it it's gone so that's what we're doing and sometimes we're lucky we know where the sites are so we can get out ahead and mark them or we're out there like 20 meters 30 meters in front of the bulldozer the fire is on one side the bulldozers roaring behind us and then there's unburned fuels on the other side and we're trying to lead the bulldozer where it won't affect the resources but at the same time corral the fire in. and we'll be doing it with bulldozers or we'll be out with hand crews we really got to be able to hustle and keep up and stay ahead of these hand crews as they're digging lines over ridge tops or, or mountain tops that's the places where cultural resources usually are so it's a it can be an exciting job <laughs> yeah i bet and yeah. 
it sounds like you've gotten to go quite quite a few different places far and wide basically working yeah. in fire archaeology can you talk a little bit about what that's been like working with a your own cultural resources and then you know these far away places as well yeah well i i really like it it gets me out it gets me it supplements my my income and i've been able to work here in arizona dealing with our local resources the ancestral puebloan and um, navajo sites and modern native navajo hopi paiute sites and historic euro-american sites that that i've been around all of my life and i've occasionally gotten to go out and work in other areas in in other cultures i was up on the um the white draw fire in south dakota one year and my my excitement there was i found a clovis point which is pretty cool wow <laughs> that so is cool yeah the fires they tend to uncover they burn off all the grass and all the vegetation so it's pretty important that we get people out there and we find what's on the ground because erosion will be happening right after the fire and one of the more unfortunate aspects is there's people that'll go out and start taking all the artifacts right. once they can see them on the ground they're there so it's really important that we get people out there to find everything so that we know, oh, let's go, let's check on this throughout the year. Or, hey, let's, we're going to go and um, do our reseeding effort in this area because there's a lot of sites. So we're, archaeologists right. are pretty important when it comes to, to fire management. I think we need people before and after. Right. Yeah, and I've been out in California which is sort of out of my area, but the lithics, lithic technology is pretty much the same and ceramic technology is pretty much the same. The material culture can be a little bit different. They have a lot of uh, shell mounds out there that I'm looking for, making sure the dozers don't hit them. And, and they just have different, different tribes with different beliefs than mine. But regardless of anything like if it's important to one tribe it's important to me so right. i'll be trying to trying to find local tribal members and see what's important and, and how best to to take care of things or put them get them to communicate with the local forest or whoever's in charge to, to figure out how best to protect their their resources so, so it's, right. it's a great job i like it a lot a lot of hard work, long days, but I'm still young enough to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of tribes, there's kind of this idea of of artifacts or places having life cycles and yeah. that structures, for example, that they get built and they're used yeah. and then that they should return to the earth. Yeah. For one of, one of the issues we deal with is that there's natural processes, human beings and the things we do. We're not outside. We're not outside nature. The things we build, eventually they're going to degrade. They're going to erode. They're going to wash away. And that's been 
the intention since 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 the beginning, since we became human, since we developed thought and creativity. And artifacts, lithics, ceramics, these pueblos, these rock art, they're they're gonna go back to the earth and that's part of the natural process. And that's not something that it's not it's not detrimental, I think. For as a native person, it's like, well, it's part of it. Fire comes through, it weakens these pottery shards just a little bit. And they'll erode a little bit. And then the next fire will come through 10 years later and maybe it'll crack it in half. And then the next fire and eventually it'll be dust. And that seemingly people will say, oh, that's destruction, it's, it's, it's gone. But that's part of, that's part of the process. That's part of nature. And that's sort of how we, I think that's how we should look at things. But on the other hand, these artifacts, these sites, they're some of the only evidence that we were here. And I think that it's important that we save and protect a lot of these sites because otherwise there would be no record of our passing. In a thousand years, in 2000 years, we're probably still gonna be doing what we're doing now. Native people are constantly gonna have to prove, this is who I am, this is where I come from. And we're gonna have to be able to point to these rock art sites. We're gonna have to be able to point at these teepee rings, at these pueblos, at these pottery shirts and lithic artifacts. We're gonna have to have something to point to and say, this is who we are. And here's my proof. Someday, way in the future, maybe our great, great, great grandkids won't have to do that. But until then, I think our obligation for the future is we need to preserve and protect a lot of these things. And especially now with this current administration, we're dealing with possible privatization of native land Federal lands are native lands. We, we need to realize that. We're, we're looking at losing access to these areas. And I think as native people, we need to be aware of that, that these lands are ours. They're public lands, but they're our lands too. And all of our proof is out there. All of our proof of who we are is out in these forests, in these parks. And we need to be working on preserving and protecting these. Because once that's gone, someday they're going to say, prove it. And we're not going to be able to. Right. All of the sherds will have been looted. All of the rock art graffitied. And we need to be looking way ahead into the future. And one of the things I, I've said before is that when we look at these lands, like grasslands, mountains, rivers, canyons, like we're not just looking at land. We're not just looking out on the landscape. We're looking in the mirror. We're looking at ourselves. How these lands are treated and what they become is who we're gonna become. If there's oil derricks out there, that's who we're gonna be. If there's oil shale mines digging up everything, if there's coal mines, if they if they overgraze everything, if they cut down all the trees, that's gonna affect us. That's gonna affect native people, who we are 
and who we're going to become. So we have to take care of these places. We got to step up and we got to participate in management. We need to become managers. We need to learn about these things and we need to save them. Right now is a very difficult time for these federal lands and we need to work on saving them. We need to work on becoming part of the process. I think the Bears Ears was a positive step in getting Native Americans into the management process when it comes to federal lands because we've been ignored for so long. And right now, they're, they're being threatened. They're saying, like, Native people, you don't know how to manage land. You don't know anything about that. We're going we're gonna to keep all this and leave you guys out. Native people don't know what they want. They're just being paid by outsiders. And right. that's all just, it's just racism, saying that right. we're not smart enough to do it. We're not educated enough to do it. And it's been the same since the beginning. Oh, these Cahokia mounds, Native people couldn't have done it. That has to be lost Israelites. And that's how, that was the attitude in the 1800s. And now, now it's like, oh, Native people couldn't have built Machu Picchu or Chaco Canyon. It has to be aliens. Native people couldn't have built the Egyptian pyramids. It has to be aliens. So it's just this long, constant denial of the intelligence and beauty of Native people. And I think hopefully someday people will see that and, and treat us accordingly. <laughs> right. And the irony, of course, being that Native Americans managed this country for much, yeah. much longer than, yeah. than Euro Americans have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that was all very true what you said. And I, I think you're right that we're in for a lot of a lot of battles to yeah. to protect these places and, and protect Native American voices in those places. Yep. So we're really close to being out of time. So I guess what I want to finish with is if there's been any projects or programs or things like that through your work that have really just been highlights for you or that you've seen do really creative and effective work or that have just been really successful if there's anything that that stands out to you as as something that has really yeah. been particularly special for you I, I think every time i get out there and talk with people about archaeology on my own as a private person which is all my statements here are as a private person like i'll go out and i'll go like to an archaeology day and i'll make pottery i'll have all my pottery shirts out and i'll talk to anyone that walks by about pottery and oftentimes these are non-native people and they'll be surprised that oh my god this is how they did it wow that's really cool and i'll tell them about like the history of the area and talk about not just native history but american history like pioneers and where the cavalry was and like where the native people were and people will always have always have questions oh there's a site out of my house and there's this kind of pottery shirt and i'll be like oh well that type of pottery shirt is from from 1200 to 1300 and 
there's probably a big Pueblo nearby. And they'll be, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And people, I think people want to learn. Everyone has questions, but it's hard to find the right answers. And sometimes the right answer isn't just at the local, the local park. I mean, parks are great, but I think sometimes to get the real story, you gotta, you gotta ask a native person. <laughs> right. So I think that's that's really what I like is answering these questions and just making people realize that we're here, we've always been here, and we're always going to be here. And this is how this is how we're always going to be here. Yes, Peter. Well, it sounds like that's the the takeaway from the day right there. Yeah. That's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jason. Did you yeah, have anything else that you wanted to to add? Not really. It's just thanks for thanks for having me. Have a great day, everybody. <laughs> For listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.com. Org, or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.